You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter, founder and investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired, to be a founder, or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's episode, I speak with David Helene, who is the founder and CEO of Equity, a provider of equitable and effective cash transfer administration technology for institutional and government partners. Under his leadership, Equity has worked with over 30 innovative partners in post-secondary education to process over 85 million in emergency grants to over 90,000 students, 40% of whom have been student parents, as well as municipalities that include the city of Baltimore. He has helped the organization attract over $8 million from great investors. For his work at Equity, David was named to 2020's Forbes 30 Under 30 in Social Entrepreneurship. Prior to Equity, David founded a nonprofit college access organization called Unify Scholars, where he worked with over 400 students around college financial planning and spent nearly three years at the Clearinghouse, a financial trade association and payments company representing the interests of the nation's largest commercial banks. Equity 4X'd their higher ed revenue last year. They've raised $8 million. They have about 34 employees, continue to grow. On the show, we discussed changing demographics in students, the importance and purpose of higher ed, why college costs keep rising, taking policy risks as a startup, launching a second product, and the role of business in politics. I think you'll enjoy it, so please stay tuned. David, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Let's jump right in. Your first job out of college was working for the man. How did you end up fighting structural inequality? That it was. So my first job out of college was working for an interesting organization. And I sort of took the job because one of the most interesting courses I took in college was on financial crisis. And the company that I was working for was billed to me as the Federal Reserve before the Federal Reserve. And it was, it was a, it was literally the clearinghouse and still is, but most of my roles and responsibilities were focused on effectively lobbying on behalf of the 24 largest commercial banks in the country. So three months into my role, uh, I realized that this wasn't morally how I wanted to be spending my time. And I actually started a nonprofit uh, college access organization within three months of my job, which I was doing as a moonlighting gig. So uh, my nights and weekends were spent building a curriculum around the intersection of financial literacy and college success. And I spent uh, vacation time in my first summer to run uh, a program that helped low-income high school students in New York City uh, financially plan for the next 10 years of their lives, including their college decision point. I left my job in 2015 to run this organization in a full-time capacity. And in doing this work, working with about 400 students, I realized that the structural inequality and the structural financial issues that students were facing uh, was, were far too vast to be planned for. So the way that students are receiving uh, financial aid doesn't actually amount to the true cost of living that students experience. A study that I read in 2015 found that students, when they matriculate to college, are actually dealing with a cost of living that's about 30% greater than what's represented on their financial aid. So the second that most students set foot on a college campus, they're fundamentally insolvent. 
So in doing that work, I realized that I that access to the safety net would need to be inevitable for many students and that students need a streamlined experience to get the resources that they would need to stay enrolled and, and stay successful. And that is what led me to found Equity, uh, where we are now streamlining access to the safety nets, specifically through the provision of emergency cash grants for students. So what do you mean by structural inequality? So I appreciate that question. So if you think about the demographics of students who are now going to college education, we've actually reached an inflection point where over 50% of them are now over the age of 25. So we're talking about largely working adults. 25% of college students are actually themselves parents. So as you think about the demographic shifts and the fact that the fastest growing demographics among college students are Black and Latinx students, we're dealing with a student population that is increasingly low income and increasingly does not have the financial resources to persist and to be successful. This is, you know, as you think about financial aid and what it's meeting or not meeting, you have to look at decades of trends in higher education where the median income and wages in this country have largely stagnated, but the cost of college has risen by, you know, 500% or so over the last two decades. So the, the financial resources that families have and students have to, to get in and pay for tuition and cost of living expenses has not kept pace with uh, what it costs to attend, as well as rising cost of living as housing prices, other cost of living expenses have risen. So the burden to go to college is now uh, financially almost untenable, yet financial aid resources have not really kept pace. But today, the cost of the Pell Grant meets about 30% of tuition, which means that uh, students have to contend with a tremendous amount of expenses beyond their tuition costs and, and do not have the resources to meet them. Any idea why college costs so much? A lot of, uh, there, there are a lot of factors that go into this. You know, there, there are incentive structures on the, you know, on colleges having to present themselves as a luxury good. And as you think about the way that, and, and you of all people know this as an expert in student and the financial aid space, there are some perverse incentives for colleges to raise costs as, you know, things like parent plus loans uh, and other lending products federally are made available that allow institutions to continue to raise costs without having to, in some cases, meet performance-based outcomes. At the same time, it just costs more uh, for landed institutions to educate a student. You know, a lot of administrative costs have gone up over the past couple of decades. And as we sort of think about, you know, the actual fundamentals of what it takes to run an institution, it has increased. Now, this is sort of explained why institutions like Southern New Hampshire University, Western Governor University, nonprofit online education providers are really taking off because they have a model that is more scalable, it's more cost-effective, and allows them to bring a more cost-effective product to students. And you know, I posit that you will see the continued growth of these types of entities over the next decade or so. You also see community colleges, by the way, try to adapt. And we've actually seen a lot of community colleges, like our partners, Dallas College, you know, they have a tremendous percentage of their students that are actually enrolled in online education. So I do think you will see a restructuring of cost over the next decade uh, out of existential survival. But I do think that some of those driving forces that have led to rising costs are some of those that I described. Yeah, I also think we've defined quality as being those things that drive higher cost, like yeah. student-teacher ratio, is a definitional yep. issue of quality for a lot of people. And if you're defining low productivity in a sector as being quality, it does leave you trapped to adopt technology. 
I, I think that's right. And I, I should qualify that, you know, certain institutions, you know, community colleges costs have remained pretty cost effective and affordable for students, right? So you know, credit hours at community colleges are, are, you know, we're talking about hundreds of dollars in certain cases. I know that Dallas College, for instance, is about $2,000 a semester for students. So it's not universally the case that costs, uh, and at least on the tuition side, have gone out of control. But the fact that cost of living is skyrocketing in many cases, that has to be considered as we think about uh, college success. And actually, you know, right now, about 50% of college students are contending with either food or housing insecurity, which seems like a staggering number. But the institution that you and I went to, Miles, is very different from the type of institutions that most students are going to. And I think in the, in the popular media, we talk too much about institutions like Harvard and Yale that are educating, you know, a vast, a, a small minority of uh, students in this country, whereas about 75% of students are going to community colleges or open enrollment for your institutions. And that's really where we should be focusing our time and attention because those are the institutions that are educating the vast majority of the next generation of our workforce. So that is you know, something that's really where we spend our time at equity is on the majority of students. And it's where these types of issues are most pronounced. So you've alluded to the fact that college completion is relatively low. And I think you're saying much of the reason is financial. Is that right? Yeah, it is. In fact, it's, it is the number one reason that students are dropping out. And increasingly, the number two reason is attributed to mental health. And I would argue that it's pretty hard to separate financial well-being and stress from mental health in many cases. But it's been documented that about 42% of students in the most recent survey are dropping out due to financial issues. Does that mean that they didn't have the resources up front and... It was doomed or something changed in the process? In many cases, it is the former, right? And I think this gets back to the heart of what I was sharing before, which is that, you know, there's no standardized formula for how colleges need to represent cost of living. It's not necessarily indexed to the true cost of living of a geographic region. And the types of expenses that are accounted for in a financial aid award letter are not standardized. So a study that Sarah Wilder-Brad, Robert Kelchin, and Brayden Hosh did in 2015, and has since been updated, found that you know in either direction, college costs can be off by about 20 to 30 percent relative to the financial aid award letter that they're representing. So if I'm borrowing against a cost structure that's 30 percent below what I'm actually going to meet, again, the second I show up, I'm fundamentally underwater. And for many students, that is the case. They're they're taking out financial aid, they're making borrowing decisions that are predicated against a certain cost of living, but 87% of students live off campus in the US, right? So they're paying rent just like the rest of us. And they're having to deal with, you know, everyday costs, food, transportation, other expenses that often are underrepresented in college financial aid award. So many students are fundamentally showing up without the resources they need to be successful. And that's why 60% of students in states like California are dealing with housing security, and nationally, between 11 and 17% are actually dealing with homelessness. And it's because they fundamentally do not have the resources they need to be successful the second that they show up. Well, given all that, are we right to hold up college as a gateway to economic opportunity in the middle class? I mean, I think there's two parts to that question. One, is it factually true? And two, is it good policy? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Miles. I mean, college is a signal. Right. And I think we're seeing right now, right before our eyes, a lot of new types of upskilling and reskilling 
types of opportunities to try to edu- to try to uh, prepare the next generation of the workforce. You know, there, there are two parts of this question to me. One is philosophical, right? One is normative. What should college be? When we think about issues of equity, should everybody have the opportunity to have an education that forms the mind, right? That's a philosophical and moral conversation. The other is more pragmatic and it's what should college be if the end goal is preparing the next generation of the workforce, right? And I think a lot of time and attention increasingly is being focused on the latter out of sort of pragmatic financial necessity, whether or not that's just is another question, right? But if we're talking about the pragmatism of how do we create a financially you know, stable generation of the workforce, you're seeing a lot of new types of programs that are focused on core skills, you know, uh, programs like Career Karma, for instance, which is, you know, helping folks learn tech skills, sales skills, other skills, uh, or, or boot camps, uh, or uh, shorter degree programs like what WGU in Southern New Hampshire offer, right, at a more affordable price point. You are seeing a reinvention of higher education that I do think is going to be a financial necessity. Now, the challenge there is that if you're looking at demographics and the students that are increasingly having to gravitate to those types of programs are Black and Latinx, it does beg a question of whether you're creating you know, exacerbated uh, inequities in, in or inequality from a, a, wealth, a wealth building standpoint. Right, if you are capping the upper bound of what certain demographic groups are able to earn based on the types of schooling that they have to to sort of gravitate to based on financial reality. But again, pragmatically, you're going to start to see other options sprout, right? Because it's just not a sustainable pathway for far too many students, and we need to create more options. Again, the moral implications of that, I'm not necessarily weighing on, but I think the pragmatic implications are you're going to see this continue. Well, we've laid out the problem, quote unquote, here and the challenges. I'd like to hear more about the company and your solutions. Yeah, absolutely. At Equity, what we are helping focus on or help institutions focus on is keeping students enrolled, right? And the way that we do that is, you know, one of the interesting trends we saw over the past decade is that colleges and universities have fundamentally been re-engineering themselves as social services organizations. So they've been standing up things like food pantries, mental health services, in many cases, childcare centers. And one of the tools that they've been increasingly investing in is emergency aid. So these are emergency cash grant programs that are specifically geared toward keeping students enrolled. But as you can imagine, bureaucratic higher ed institutions are not so nimble and well-equipped to ensure that these dollars get out fast and are also getting out in a way that's equitable uh, and standardized. And uh, the solution that we've developed is an end-to-end emergency aid administration technology that helps with application, decision, uh, payment, and reporting where we are able to get cash assistance in hand to students on average in 25 hours. The goal of this work is to do this in a way that's more cost-effective, equitable, and effective than what higher education institutions are doing today. And we've been able to demonstrate that an emergency aid grant from Equity uh, has improved the probability of graduation for students by about 2x. Now, we, of course, want to replicate this research and do it in different contexts to prove that this is not just a one-off, but we've shown that our approach does materially improve the probability of persistence. Now, the other point of this work, Miles, is to make sure that we're not just improving outcomes, right, but that we are improving outcomes for the communities who need it most. And there is a racial equity component to this. And historically, a lot of, uh, a lot of emergency aid programs when evaluated have shown that they are over-awarding 
white students relative to others based on the distribution of basic needs challenges at their school. And in work that we've done with schools like Southern New Hampshire, WGU, you know, the San Diego Community College District, we've also shown that we're not only increasing retention, but we're also doing so in a way that is narrowing equity gaps in the awarding process. And our methodology is unique in that we've partnered with the leading academic research expert in the country who has been studying basic needs and security for the past decade. So Sarah Goldrick-Rabb, who is the founding director of the Hope Center for College Community and Justice, who has really done the, the large body of research around student basic needs and has brought this issue to a national spotlight, so much so that she testified before Congress a few weeks ago. We worked with Sarah to take her body of research and actually turn it into a decision-making framework to ensure that it's not only uh, optimizing for equity in the decision-making process, but also allocating a scarce resource to the students that, uh, who actually will see the money move the needle around their life and allow them to stay in place. So we're ensuring that we're not quote unquote skimming off the top, so to speak, and how we're making awards. We are actually optimizing for greatest need, but we're doing so in a way that also ensures that it will move the needle for the student. And so far, the early returns have been very positive in the outcomes that we've been able to bring to the world. So your software to help schools give out emergency loans to keep students in school? Emergency grants, but yes, grants. that's exactly right. Yep. Grants. Okay. Yeah. And I was just going to ask, well, how do you make money then? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, we are a SaaS product. So right now we charge institutions uh, basis points against the volume that we're processing. So, you know, we are typically taking between 100 and 300 basis points, uh, depending on volume, plus, of course, there's an implementation fee to get set up. You know, for us, part of this is market timing. And, you know, our, our thesis is that we would see emergency aid continue to grow over time. Certainly, there was a huge infusion of emergency aid in the past year uh, with a $32 billion infusion of emergency aid at a federal level. But beyond that, we've seen states continue to invest more and more money over the years. California has invested $100 million in emergency aid. States like Washington has put in $33 million. This will only increase. This will also only increase as you know, natural disasters continue to increase in prevalence. Uh, there is actually a bill that is proposed at the congressional level that would create a new grant under HEA, which is the Emergency Aid for College Students Act that was proposed by Senator Tina Smith. So, you know, we really believe that this will continue to see greater investment over the years because, as I've laid out, it is a financial necessity uh, for institutions to make these funds available for students if they want to keep them in but you mentioned, you know, we are a company that helps move emergency aid for college students, and certainly that is our core business. But I would argue that the problem in higher education is a microcosm of what's going on in the broader macro economy. So, you know, we're seeing increased infusions of cash transfer programs that are geared toward low-income citizens, but fundamentally the infrastructure is not there to get this money out and get it out in a way that's fast and effective. We've seen this in other areas across the macro economy, whether it be, you know, unemployment insurance or one of the most acute in, uh, examples is emergency rental assistance, uh, which has led to far more folks losing their homes and would need to be the case given the amount of investment that's come out. But we are seeing municipal, state and federal government increasingly re-engineer the social safety net right before our eyes from what has historically been a largely voucher-based safety net to an increasingly cash transfer-based safety net. And that is a trend that we expect to continue over the next decade. Uh, and again, we see a lot of similarity around what we're doing in higher education to what's going on in the, in the broader macro economy around local and state government. And that's led you to launch an additional product. Is that right? 
It certainly has. And uh, 2021 was a busy year for us. Um, you know, we forexed our ARR in higher education and, and really uh, increased our footprint quite rapidly. But we also did, to your point, bring a new product to market. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, the problem that we're solving for in higher education is an application, verification, decision, payment, and reporting, right? And that problem, again, is replicated across local and state government as they're trying to get cash, uh, cash transfers to citizens. You know, we've seen the rise of programs where uh, cities have become a locus of experimentation, whether it be water utility subsidy programs for cities where water bills are very high, or of course, the very popular national, uh, nationally known uh, UBI, which is translated into guaranteed income at a local level, and about 60 municipalities across the country have invested in, in guaranteed income programs. But also, we've seen the rise of emergency rental assistance, and there's been a $47 billion infusion of ERAP into the market. And the solution that we've brought to bear is the solution to help uh, city and state government administer these cash transfer programs. So, you know, primarily, we've started with emergency rental assistance, but Again, the goal here is to create an infrastructure for cities to streamline how they're administering these, pro uh, these programs in a way that minimizes its administrative burden, but also burden for applicants. If I'm low income, I don't want to have to apply for eight different programs again and again and constantly perform my poverty. I want the city to keep that information, right? And I want them to reuse it across their various social safety net programs. So, we actually, and I'm excited to say, we signed our first contract with the municipality at the end of 2021 to manage one of their, uh, their utility subsidy programs, but we're also talking to them about managing their rental security deposit program and their emergency rental assistance program and moving toward this broader vision of centralizing their cash transfer programs against a, a single system to make these programs perform faster and more equitably for citizens. So that's also a direction we are moving in quite rapidly in 2022. We actually just had an, an incoming mayor, a new mayor elect who just took office this week, uh, commit to rolling out our solution in the, in the first 100 days of his transition plan. So we're anticipating growing quite rapidly in this space as well, and actually charting a broader path of serving as the domestic infrastructure for equitable and effective cash transfer programs, not just in higher education, but broadly across different verticals, including local and state government. Well, congratulations on successful product rollout and the growth in your existing product. Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. I'm curious, how do you manage and balance two different customer bases? It is, uh, it is a journey. And you have to be ruthless about how you're prioritizing resources internally. You know, I think one of the interesting challenges uh, for the organization this year is we will be building out a second business unit. And we will be capitalizing to pursue that separately, where we will sp split out our product team. And we'll have dedicated PMs, engineers focused on different problem spaces and add additional resources for a separate go-to-market function. In 2021, it was a dance. <laughs> it was a dance to focus our, our product growth efforts in education in the highest leverage areas while also validating this new product space. But to your point, we will have to capitalize and be very thoughtful about organizational design uh, where there can be synergies across the two business units. Because again, the fundamental product architecture is the same. 
but the product architecture, but the product itself is a little different, right? Which does necessitate the splitting of teams. So we are in the process of capitalizing and are uh, aiming to close our series A in, in the first quarter of this year that will allow us to invest new resources to build out this business here. So you mentioned fundraising, you've raised 8 million to date, and now you're going out for a series A. That's right. And, you know, one of the things we actually did early on, is I mentioned, you know, my, my first foray into the education space was in college access. And actually, Equity as an organization, our first product was actually a college access tool that was focused on streamlining financial planning. Uh, we pivoted in 2018 from that hypothesis. And even though we did have paying customers, we saw that the total addressable market there was not going to be big enough and that streamlining access to the safety net was more of a not to be trite, but more of a painkiller than a vitamin, which is the, the general trope in, in uh, you know, building a business. And that pivot, uh, you know, we had raised capital for our original, original product there. So you know, we've gone through two iterations of business, I would say, but we are in the process of going out to your point for a Series A, and we have raised about $8 million to date. And when you've raised money from investors, how do you talk about the for-profit nature and the mission? Are they self-reinforcing? Are you having to emphasize different messages to different audiences? What's your approach? Yeah, I appreciate that question. I mean, the beauty of our business model is that when we do well by the by the country, equity does well, right? So our North Star goal as an organization is to re-engineer the social safety net to distribute cash to all Americans in need, right? Part of that implied mission is to increase the supply of cash transfers to citizens, and particularly those citizens who need it most. Because our business model is predicated on taking you know, basis points against our processing volume, increasing that supply, improving the efficacy of these cash transfers, proving that giving people who need money, the money they need to be successful and doing that again and again, and watching that evidence translate into policy reform allows equity to do really well. So our fundamental mission is directly aligned with our business model. And, you know, as is everything, in every case, timing is everything, right? And our thesis here is that the U.S. is hitting an inflection point where we are transitioning our social safety net from a largely voucher-based safety net to increasingly cash-based safety net. And I think you need to look no farther than what happened in 2021 to understand the power of that migration, right? So we had... We still have, but we were in the throes of a global pandemic last year, right? And uh, one would expect that the poverty rate would really climb in a year like that. But what actually happened in 2021 is that the poverty rate declined from 13 to 9%. And the reason for that is largely due to the direct cash transfer programs that were made available to citizens, things like the child tax credit, you know, the actual direct stimulus checks that went to citizens directly from the federal government. These programs were instrumental in showing in an evidence-based way that we are reducing poverty when we give folks who need money the money they need to be successful. And, you know, we've built back better, of course, is facing some challenges in Congress right now, but we are seeing general trends, even if not at the federal level, in the state and local level to continue to invest more into giving citizens the money they need to be successful. I'll give you an example at the state level. State of Oregon just a week ago authorized an incremental $100 million into their emergency rental assistance that's state-based funding, right? So this is the trend that we're predicting will continue. And again, it's directly aligned with our overarching mission. 
Yeah, you mentioned cash assistance. We've had Andrew Yang on the podcast twice and Paul Niehaus recently talking about Give Directly. So it's oh, yeah. certainly been a theme around here and something I'm very interested in. And to Andrew Yang's credit, I think you know he has largely popularized this concept, right? I think there had been a growing body of research, certainly in certain academic and foundation communities that understood the power of this. But to Andrew Yang's credit, I don't think it really received the national spotlight as an idea until he ran for president. And we have we are great admirers of the work they give directly uh, that has been doing for years, both domestically and internationally. So again, there are a lot of trailblazers here that have brought this concept into more of a national spotlight over the last few years. You mentioned earlier that policy evolution is an important part of your thesis. And we've had folks on the show talking about how to think about technical risk. Like I think about Mark Tarpening, founder of Tesla. We had a conversation about technical risk that went pretty in depth. A lot of investors or entrepreneurs will try not to take technical risk. Sometimes they're more interested in market risk. Like, will people want to buy it? That's all I have to prove. You're talking about explicitly embracing policy risk and having a thesis in the policy area, which I think is unusual for tech founders. And I'm curious how you felt comfortable doing that and uh, any tips for others in how to do that successfully. Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. And I would agree. I think having a healthy embrace of policy risk is something that I think is unusual. It's also a parlance and language that I don't think venture capital is that familiar with or quite candidly comfortable with. Now, I would argue that policy risk is not new to the venture space, particularly if you look at the on-demand economy, there's a tremendous amount of regulatory risk that companies like Uber, Airbnb- well, What about Airbnb, crypto? I mean, what about yeah, crypto? I mean, and it's interesting, right? I mean, I think the policy risk there is a little bit different because I think what you're begging for is a regulatory framework. I mean, higher education, I think, you know, a space that is similar is ISAs, right? And uh, income sharing agreements still lack a cohesive regulatory framework. And I really think that is hurting the companies in that space because there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty around where, where it's going to land. In our case, you know, the policy risk is more grounded in advocacy, right? Which I think is, is different than wanting a regulatory framework. It's actually advocating to move the needle on the types of legislative efforts that are going to, to be passed over the next decade. And I think that's, that is a different framework. And I, I think we are the type of company that has a clear mission-based North Star and a clear vision for what we think the normative chart of the universe should look like. And we are not shying away for advocating for the things that we believe in. And what I think that means is you need to have a healthy relationship with the research, right? And you have to actually empirically prove again and again that the thing that you're doing actually works. <laughs> and you have to hold yourself to a really serious account. Now, I think a lot of tech companies try to be apolitical. And I look, I, I get the rationale for that. I think in today's world, that is actually not the bravest path and it's not the most important path, but I, I get the rationale. But I think we are inherently a political organization in the sense that we are advocating for a certain direction and certain legislative agenda that we think is right for the country. And I think to your point, that is new for tech. And I think the advice that I have is, you know, you have to have conviction. And I think if entrepreneurs are good at one thing, it's 
having conviction, but usually that conviction is in the problem that they're solving and the solution they're bringing to market. We have conviction in right and wrong. And I think that is a different type of concept. And it's one that we can't shy away from, particularly on the anniversary, like today, of a coup on our capital, right? Is there is a moral right and a moral wrong. And I think I will turn a lot of people off by saying that, but that's okay. And it means that we as an organization need to find our community, our investor base, you know, our cities, our states that believe in our view of the world, and we need to stick to them and evangelize them and continue to move forward with them in shaping what tomorrow will look like. So you believe that companies should take political positions, uh, even if you disagree with them? You know, I think companies, by definition, are citizens, right? And citizens cannot shy away from engaging in our political discourse. I get the rationale for why they don't, right? I get that as a capitalist enterprise, there are huge downside risks of doing so, but I think it is hard given the stakes of what's going on around us to not have a strong opinion about what right looks like and to try to contribute to a more right and a more just world. And again, not every investor will be comfortable with that approach, but I do think, and I think that we're very fortunate, like I said, timing is everything, I do think there is a, a growing impact investment community, right? A growing set of investors who share that belief, right? Who do have an understanding of, of what, you know, good does look like and should look like in the world, can take a longer view, may have a larger risk appetite, right? You know, I think we're lucky that there's more capital out there that is supporting the type of position that I'm taking. But I do think, quite frankly, that it is a cop-out and I don't want to, you know, come at Brian Armstrong or anyone in particular, but to operate in a way that is apolitical is to put your head in the sand. And I don't think that that is a responsible way to operate a business in this day and age. No, I think it's uh, challenging for many people when they think about what is the proper role for business these days. Uh, I agree with you. The old models don't work, but I'm not sure we've come up with new ones that that really work. We've found ourselves in a situation where it seems so much has been politicized that used to be considered sort of non-political. And I think that's made it even more challenging to navigate. And, you know, I think Mark Benioff wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of years ago, articulating a need for a new type of, of conscious capitalism, right? And I think, you know, I, I'd be hard pressed to argue that Salesforce has not performed well. And yet he's been a leader that's been pretty vocal about the role that business and enterprise should be playing in charting you know, the next generation of this country and being a, an actor in a community. So I think the framework that he's outlined is, is really one that resonated with me. And I think among tech leaders that I admire, he's certainly up there based on the fact that he actually has taken a pretty vocal stance on what conscious capitalism looks like. And I agree with you, Miles, that there hasn't been a very strong articulation of what, you know, good capitalism looks like. I think a lot of folks do lament the current state of affairs without proposing really practical or actionable solutions for the reforming of the system. But I will say that I, I thought that the way that Mark Benioff has articulated a possible approach to a new form of this is one that resonated with me. And what decisions have you made as a result of that? I mean, I think for us, it's, I have not shied away from engaging in what we believe in. And I, I think 
you know, having a healthy skepticism of the tech industry in general is also something that I think has helped me chart a course. I do think that, you know, it would be, I would be hard pressed to argue that tech has not transformed this country in, in many ways for good, right? But there have been tremendous externalities that have not been grappled with. And because of that, I think there is a responsibility in particular to understand the impact of what we do. And because of that, rather than be reactive, I think we want to be proactive and take a really proactive stance about what we want to do and how we want to bring impact into the world and try to be as uncompromising about that as possible. And I think to do that, you have to embrace that it might not work, right? And um, there's always risk when you run a startup. You, of course, try to minimize downside risk to the best of your ability. But I would rather fail doing what I think is right and transformative for the world than to succeed in a way that's bringing incremental harm into the system. And I think that is a trade-off that a lot of entrepreneurs ultimately are willing to make, right? They run companies that actually ultimately do more harm than good. And that's not something that we are willing to do here. And fortunately, we have an investor group that supports that approach. Well, that's certainly very aspirational. You mentioned earlier, Sarah, as part of your team, who's a real expert on doing research in this area. How do you build relationships and bring someone in who has such prominence in the area when, when you're just a startup? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> my relationship with Sarah really blossomed over many years because I just kept showing up, right? And I think one of the important parts, I think, of running a company and, and being a leader is exhibiting humility and a tremendous ability to learn, right? And it was clear that, you know, Sarah was the expert and that I was lucky to be able to learn from her at any opportunity that she was willing to take my call or take some moments with me. And I just wanted to keep learning and keep learning from someone, you know, with so much to give to the world as Sarah. And it was, you know, perhaps pestering at times that I was continue to email her with questions and, and uh, you know, engage her in her talks, but just showing up, being genuine, right? Being genuine about what we're trying to do in the end game here, uh, having a shared mission and a shared idea for what, you know, tomorrow will look like and being tremendously humble is how we built a relationship together. And, you know, as you mentioned, she's the expert and I am not, uh, you know, I am not trying to <laughs> to convince myself by any means that it is me. Um, but I think as we enter spaces, as we enter spaces with higher education institutions, with, with government actors, having that sense of humility and empathy and, and understanding that we're trying to do right by them and, and trying to do good, I think that approach resonated. And I don't want to speak for Sarah, but I think it resonated with her. And we built a genuine relationship over many years because of it. And you know, I think that's something that we're going to continue to try to replicate as we expand into other verticals, right? There are experts out there who have been devoting their lives to, you know, making, making municipal and state government perform better, trying to move new policies into the system, like different cash transfer programs, you know, folks like Mayor Michael Tubbs, for instance, who was a, a pioneer in, in uh, getting guaranteed income off the ground and has been such a driving force at seeing it grow across the, across the country. I mean, those are the folks that we want to bring into the fold, but also show up with humility and treat them like the experts of war. Was that a similar process when you did your acquisition? Yeah, I mean, I, I was uh, very fortunate to get to know uh, Westmore uh, over the years. And, um, you know, Bridget U was doing some tremendous, 
tremendous work that resonated with me as, an, as someone, as a recovering nonprofit uh, executive who was doing high touch work in the classroom. You know, Bridget EU is doing similarly tremendous work with low-income students at community colleges across, across the country. And you know, equity is ultimately a, a data-based organization, right? We are trying to take data points and make equitable and high-impact decisions based on those data points. And Bridge EU had a ton of really high-quality data across you know, thousands of students that they had served. So in addition to seeing that data really valuable as we were trying to build an early decision-making framework, you know, again, we see value in bringing in the most tremendously high impact people, right? And, and Wes Moore, who uh, is now on our board and was the founding the founder of, of Virginia U and is now you know, a very viable uh, candidate for governor in, in Maryland. And certainly, uh, if you're not following Wes's campaign, I certainly would, would recommend that you do so. But, you know, I think, again, startups are about teams and we want to attract the best folks to our work and the folks that can move the ball forward, particularly given our lofty aspirations. So, you know, bringing bridge into the mix with both the data play, but also a people play. And we're, you know, I've been grateful to work with Wes over the years in the wake of that acquisition. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's, that brought in investors and people as a young startup. I imagine that was a big coup. Yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, considering to attract high leverage folks into the mix who can move move the needle for you is what it's all about. So the acquisition was transformative to your point. It brought in new investors for us who have been able to really help move the business and the mission forward and was just another milestone for us as we have continued to move and have you know really been able to actually bring in other investors as a result of that move as well. So at the time, it was huge. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, taking a step back, what advice would you have for aspiring founders? Yeah, you have to really want to do the work. You need to be in it for the right reasons. You need to have uh, the utmost conviction in sort of the mission that you're trying to solve for or the problem you're trying to solve for. And you have to be really comfortable with failing and being really uncomfortable, uh, which is what I found is most of the job. It's being able to take it on the chin and get up and try something new. You know, that is the, the, the biggest advice that I would give. But, you know, the other thing that I would mention is trying to enter space with as much humility as you can. And I, I think it's, a, of course, a fine balance, right? You have to have confidence in what you're doing and trust your abilities. But, you know, humility also attracts people to you, right? It allows you to build really strong interpersonal relationships. It allows you to continue to learn, right? And continue to respond to new information. and as as an entrepreneur, your goal is fundamentally to bring the best people into the organization to surround yourself with the best talent. And, you know, I think leading in that way is something that I've found to be very effective. I certainly don't want to say that I'm a leader by any means, but I do think that that leadership quality has been one that has resonated with our team and is one that I'm going to continue to move forward with as we continue to grow. Confidence in your ability, but humble enough to build relationships and keep learning. It's great advice. Thank you so much for coming on. One final question. Where can people find out more about you or the company online? Yeah, I appreciate that question, Miles. We are at equity, E-D-Q-U-I-T-Y dot C-O. So www.equity.co is where we live. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me directly, uh, it is just david at equity.co. And I'd love to start a conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. Thanks, Miles. Appreciate the opportunity to connect. Take care.
You too. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Reviews really do help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. If you are inspired today and want to join our giving circle, please do so on our website, startupsforgood.com. Thank you.